The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning. My name is Kevin Huddleston, and I serve as a deacon here on staff at Coram Deo um, over gospel communities. And it's my privilege to preach Psalm 32 to you this morning to wrap up our summer series in the Psalms. Um, You heard it read just now, and I'm sure you picked up on some familiar themes, things like blessing, forgiveness, confession. But forgiveness in particular is a little bit of a complex subject, I think. Do you agree? Well, you're about to find out why. Uh, Let me tell you a story and illuminate a little bit of what I mean. In 1994, Nelson Mandela was elected president of South Africa. This monumental moment was monumental for a lot of reasons, but particularly because just four years prior, he had been released from prison after spending 27 years behind bars. Mandela was a political party leader and activist that would not reject violence as a means for change, particularly against the oppressive apartheid government of South Africa. Now, apartheid was a system that institutionalized segregation and discrimination based on race and skin color. So for over 40 years, violence, human rights abuses, and racial oppression were legal and unspeakable crimes were committed against the powerless and marginalized people. And this was normal. This was commonplace. So with Mandela's election, This moment was historic, 
but the wounds were fresh. Decades of violence and repression could not just be forgotten overnight. So Mandela and his government in 1996 set up what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a court-like body where anyone who had been a victim of violence or a crime could come forward and give testimony to talk about what had happened to them over the course of those 40 years, or anyone who had committed crimes and other abuses could come forward and fully disclose their actions and ask for amnesty or a pardon. South Africans needed to reckon with what had happened, to bring things done in darkness against neighbors into the light in an effort to to reconcile the crimes that had been committed, even if this process wasn't perfect. So the commission offered an opportunity for that to happen. Thousands of people testified as both victims and perpetrators of crimes, declaring what had been done to them and declaring what they had done, confessing sins, asking forgiveness, and hoping for reconciliation, healing. Why do this? I mean, isn't it easier just to kind of say, all right, hey, new day. Mandela's president. We can kind of look forward to a bright new future for South Africa. We can kind of just leave the past behind, forget those things ever happened. Desmond Tutu was a black South African who grew up under the terror of apartheid, and he was an Anglican clergyman who served on this commission, and he said this, the past has a way of returning to you. It doesn't go and lie down quietly. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Without the context for forgiveness, confession, restitution, he argued the nation would likely just fall back into a cycle of violence and revenge with no hope of ever getting out of it, or to say it another way, burying sins would not heal hearts or the nation. This exercise of confession and repentance held the power to begin healing, to start new. Asking for, extending, receiving, and experiencing forgiveness was necessary for there to be a new, bright future for South Africa and its people. In today's cultural climate, this seems to be a little bit of an ingredient that's missing, am I right? The sad reality of the internet and social media age is that nothing can be absolved, and pretty much nothing can be forgotten. The power of and the shame dynamics of cancel culture, they're appealing at first, but then they kind of leave us unsatisfied. There's some empowerment that kind of comes with naming sin and shaming perpetrators. Uh, That's strong initially, but then it wears off really quickly. Cancel culture is constantly crying out, all right, that felt good, who's next? The sad reality though is our culture is crying out for real forgiveness but doesn't have the capacity to extend it or receive it. And without forgiveness, we are forever victims and perpetrators, never fully released from the consequences of our sins or wrongs. Look, here's my point. Knowing forgiveness, knowing that you are forgiven, changes you. When you know you've hurt or wronged someone and are burdened with guilt and shame, The reality of receiving forgiveness, of experiencing it firsthand, it changes you completely. It brings about joy and freedom. On the other hand, 
When you're unsure whether or not you're forgiven, you're not quite sure where you stand with somebody that you've hurt or wronged, brings about feelings of insecurity, uncertainty, unsettledness, being kind of burdened. And this is the tension that lies at the heart of Psalm 32. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Knowing we are forgiven by God fundamentally changes everything about us. But sadly, our baseline mode of operation tends to be indifference, neutrality, passive, feeling kind of stuck. God's people are meant to be so fundamentally changed by their experience of God's forgiveness that what comes out of them is actually joy, freedom, confidence, and assurance. A spiritually depressed Christian is a category that's not supposed to exist. Listen to the late pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones talk about this idea. In a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, and he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. Nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from a condition of depression which gives other people, looking at us, the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who scorns delights and lives laborious days. Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give the appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy. Knowing you're forgiven brings about joy and flourishing. That's the big idea from Psalm 32. Knowing you're forgiven brings joy and flourishing. When we miss the joy of knowing we're forgiven, we are unmoved, we are apathetic towards God's mercy, and we miss out on living a blessed and flourishing life. We functionally live as spiritually depressed Christians. We miss the joy of salvation. We miss the very heart of the gospel. And when we miss this, we are numb, we are disconnected, we are disenchanted, and we're disillusioned. So Psalm 32 offers us three keys that help keep us from this miss. Hiding leads to hurting. Confession leads to confidence. And forgiveness leads to flourishing. I know sometimes we like to alliterate with one letter, but hang with me, okay? I did the best I could on this one, all right? So first, hiding leads to hurting. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In 2007, I spent seven days in the deserts of southern Utah. It's definitely not as cool as Bob's mountain biking trip that he brought pictures of a couple weeks ago, but it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience nonetheless. Uh, 65 miles of hiking throughout the course of the week, change in elevation of 4,000 feet, drinking water only that we found, food rations of potatoes, carrots, onions, lentils, 100-plus degree days, 40-degree nights. I started that week, that picture on the left, that's me, all chipper, a lot of wind in my sails. 
started with a lot of energy and excitement. I was like, this is awesome. I can't wait to do this. And then through the course of the week, just ground down. Slow, steady deprivation, lack of oxygen, tiredness, exhaustion, dehydration. It was all setting in. And I specifically remember the last week, or the last night of that week, barely got any sleep. Slept on basically rock-hard ground. Woke up the next day. I was with a group of about 10 or 13 people. And I could not, for the life of me, ascend the mountain. I was every 20 feet going up these hills, beautiful aspen trees, and every 20 minutes, or every 20 feet, I was like, okay, I need to stop. I just had nothing left. I was completely tapped. I was gassed. This is how our soul feels when we keep silent, when we hide our sin, when we keep it in the dark. God's hand weighs heavy on us. Our spirit feels like how my body felt that week in the desert. Surviving, not thriving. Shriveling, not flourishing. You see, we tend to believe that confessing our sins seems nice, but it's not necessary. Think to ourselves, eh, I suppose, you know, I could, but what good would that really do? I mean, things are generally fine. Besides, wouldn't that make matters worse? talk about my sins, my failures, my shortcomings, my past, my wounds. But the truth is, unconfessed sin, things that are kept in the darkness, it's like a heavy hand. It doesn't lead to a blessed or good life. It's actually a sustained time in a dry desert. No release, no refuge, no hiding. If you spend any time around kids, you've probably seen this sort of lack of confession in action, right? My wife and I uh, are constantly refereeing, the three of ours under the age of five. And uh, my oldest in particular, he uh, loves to be first to things, uh, even if that means being a linebacker, plugging the two hole, going up the steps, plowing past his sisters on the way through. So at least once a week, uh, he does this, and we hear naturally screams from the girls coming upstairs, and I go upstairs, I say, buddy, what happened? And what's his response? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, Dad. You tell me what happened. I mean, some stuff, things out here, you know, like he's right. He's being evasive. He's kind of blame shifting. He's denying. He's uh, he's sometimes just straight up lying to me. Now, in that moment, if I was to say, "All right, that seems like a good. That seems like what basically happened. Let's just forget about it and move on." Would that actually bring about reconciliation and healing? No, right? He would not feel any weight of his actions. And in fact, those things would be normalized. His sisters, though not 100% innocent, mind you, uh, <laughs> they were wronged, right? There's no opportunity for them to be restored, for them, them to actually experience a, a little bit of restoration. They actually have to bear the lack of confession from their sibling. So does hiding does covering, does ignoring sin actually lead to resolution and flourishing? No. We know it would be better for everyone that peace and restoration would come with confession, but we just play this game with ourselves. This is true as children, and it's just as true in us as adults. 
We convince ourselves that what's best for me and what's best for you, what's best for those around us is actually just to keep my sin in, to hide and shade the truth and self-protect. Psalm 32 shows us hiding leads to hurting. Hiding leads to broken fellowship with God and with others. And the truth of the gospel is that we are fully known, even at our worst, especially at our worst, and yet fully loved. But we don't experience this as true when we hide our sin, when we pretend we're better than we actually are, when we mask and hide our shortcomings. Listen again to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe this reality. There's no need to argue about it. It follows as the night the day that if you are harboring some favorite sin, if you are holding on to something that the Holy Spirit is condemning through your conscience, you will not be happy. And there is only one thing to do. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Repent. Go to God at once and confess your sin. Open your heart. Bear your soul. Tell him about it. Hold nothing back. And then believe that because you have done so, he forgives you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us be perfectly clear about it. Let your conscience speak to you. Listen to the voice of God as he speaks through the spirit that is within you. And if he's placing his finger upon something, get rid of it. You cannot hope to solve this problem while you are harboring some sin. Hiding leads to hurting. Darkness brings distress, not comfort. And since we are created in God's image, we bear a conscience, right? We have a sense of right and wrong. And so by God's grace and him working in our conscience, we cannot rest until our sins, our shortcomings, our failures are just in the light, in the open. And so confessing our sin actually leads to confidence, which is our second observation from Psalm 32. Confession leads to confidence. Look at verses five through seven. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You might still be asking yourself, okay, does it, does it really make a difference, though, if I confess my sins? I mean, I hear you, but still not quite convinced. I mean, things aren't really that bad, so is it going to make a difference? Psalm 32 shows us it makes all the difference in the world. Let's think about this from a different sphere of life for just one second. Think about your workplace. How do you experience a boss, a coworker, a direct report when they messed up on a project or missed a deadline? Usually, people respond one of two ways. Option one, kind of like my son Thomas. Hide, shade the truth, say, eh, I don't know what happened. Be kind of evasive, hope that nobody pokes holes deep enough to, or asked enough questions for them to be exposed. 
And what does that lead to when that happens? Usually frustration, right? It's kind of obvious to everybody on the team that they failed or they did something wrong, and yet they just won't own up to it. So it erodes trust in that person. It erodes trust within the team. It does not lead to flourishing whatsoever. Option two, though, is just owning it, confessing. Hey, I need to be honest. I messed up. I didn't make that deadline. I messed up that submission, and that's on me. Please forgive me. Help me to get better. Help me, because I need it, clearly. What's your disposition towards the person that takes option two? Usually grace upon grace, right? Hey, thanks for being honest about what happened there. Appreciate you coming forward and taking responsibility. You're forgiven. Let's move forward. Let's, let's regroup. Let's figure out what we can do to tackle this issue. And how do you experience them? They're confident, right? They're humble. Their disposition is one of honesty. They don't have to hide. They don't have to shade the truth. They've taken responsibility and stepped into the light and say, hey, please forgive me. I messed up. I need to own this. It it helps them flourish, helps you flourish. It's good for them. It's good for you. It's good for the company, and it's good for the client. Well, the same dynamic is true in our relationship with God. Confession leads to confidence before God. Look back at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of of great waters, they shall not reach him. Do you hear the assurance, the confidence in God that he will hear the prayer of the godly? Now that everything's on the table, now that sin has been confessed and everything is in the open and in the light, the rush of waters shall not reach him. Confession also leads to communion with God. Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Do you see the reversal that comes with confession? No longer do you waste away in your groaning all day, nor is God's hand heavy upon you like it was in verses 3 and 4. Now you are preserved from troubles. Now you are surrounded by shouts of deliverance. Confession takes us from a heavy hand to hiding in him. This all sounds great, right? But the truth of the matter is confession is hard. Confession takes courage. Confession of sin, even if we're convinced that it's going to bring blessing and freedom and it's what God invites us to, it still takes Courage. It still feels like dying a slow death, acknowledging the depth of our sin, the things we've done wrong, things that bring a lot of guilt and shame and burden to our souls. How can we know that this is actually worth it? Listen to Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, describe the state of experiencing forgiveness. Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized for it is the only and sure way to happiness. Blessedness is not, in this case, ascribed to the man who has been a diligent lawkeeper, for that, it, for then it would never come to us, but rather to a lawbreaker, who by grace most rich and free has been forgiven. A full, instantaneous, irreversible pardon of transgression turns the poor sinner's hell into heaven and makes the air of wrath 
a partaker in blessing. Confessing sin takes courage. Covering sin is costly. But how much more can we confess our sins with confidence and courage because of what Christ has done on the cross? Spurgeon continues. To take away our sin, it cost our Savior a sweat of blood to bear our load. Yea, it cost him his life to bear it quite away. Christ's atonement is the propitiation, the covering, the making an end of sin. Where this is seen and trusted in, the soul knows itself to now be accepted in the beloved and therefore enjoys a conscious blessedness, which is the foretaste of heaven. Where would be the blessedness of an unknown forgiveness? Clearly, it is a matter of knowledge, for it is the ground of comfort. Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, bore our sins, takes away our sins, and through receiving his forgiveness extended to us, when we confess our sins and turn away from them, invites us to experience a conscience blessedness. Confession leads to confidence before God because our confidence is in Christ, not us. The cross of Christ empowers us with courage by bringing us into communion with God by the blood of his son, Jesus. That's good news. And so this psalm ends by showing us that forgiveness leads to flourishing. Forgiveness leads to flourishing. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you hear the change in disposition of the psalmist? Something's different in him. You can sense relief and joy and release coming from knowing and experiencing that he is forgiven. And whether it's the Lord speaking to the psalmist or whether it's the psalmist speaking to the congregation in in verse 8, there's a little bit of a debate there. But you can sense there is this call to heed wisdom, right? We are invited to consider our ways. Is this the kind of life, the kind of relationship to God we all want? And verse 9 in particular is pretty proverbial, right? Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, I'm sure there's only a few of us in the room that have um, high-level expertise in riding and training horses. Um, I happen to be one of them, so I brought along a picture to show you the last time I was on a horse. <laughs> so clearly, I'm a little bit of a subject matter expert. Um, maybe you've seen movies uh, where they are training and helping horses to respond Um, to not be wild, to actually be more tame, to be safe and easy to ride, not be overreactive. But to break a horse, then, is to make it suitable to ride, to make it safe to be around, to make it responsive to commands and to the rider. So one tool that helps this process is the bridle, the bar that is put in the horse's mouth, which applies pressure uh, to direct the horse and to create a sense of trust between the horse and the rider. That bridle causes some discomfort, right? Put some pressure, especially if the horse 
bucks and pulls away and tries to do something the rider doesn't want it to do. But eventually, as that trust develops, it starts to comply, right? The discomfort of the bridle in the mouth erodes and goes away, and eventually it's just a gentle pressure, just a gentle directive. The horse is finally broken, safe to ride, communing with the rider a bit as they walk. And there's actually a beauty in that brokenness, right? Now, the horse and the rider can both flourish in a way they couldn't before. Verse 9 says, hey, don't buck like a horse or a mule that requires heavy correction with the bridle, that resists against God. The psalm invites you to respond to and submit to God's direction to trust him, to step forward into the light and walk in obedience and faith and repentance without requiring a bridle to do so. Some of you in this room, this has been your experience of life in the faith. You've been forgiven but your disposition toward God and others has been one of hardness, resistance, submitting, but not without a, not without a bit of stubbornness along the way. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of flourishing. You know categorically that you've been forgiven, and yet how people experience you, they wouldn't know any different. There's some similarities here with God's people after the Exodus. They were set free literally from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And after a quick song of celebration, what came next? Complaining, stubbornness, hard-heartedness. God, why have you brought us into the desert to die? Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? God's grace and Moses' intercession were the only things that actually kept God's people from being completely undone and falling away. So can you see in this psalm that God is after more than your right belief? He's after your heart. He's after your whole disposition. Your entire existence as a human being is meant to be pulled in to this beautiful forgiveness and changed forever by the grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. He wants everything about you. He wants your heart, mind, soul, and strength to be marked by his salvation and his grace and love and mercy to you instead of just good thoughts or right theology. Forgiveness leads to flourishing. What breaks and humbles you is the forgiveness extended to you in the cross of Christ. When you see the love of of God in Christ crucified. There's no need for bit and bridle. Christ went to the cross willfully, joyfully, submitted to God's will. And when his forgiveness permeates your whole being, when he actually grabs hold of not just your mind, but your heart and everything that defines you and everything about you, this forgiveness permeates your entire existence so that you too can respond in a similar fashion in the way that Jesus did as he walked this life. So in the conclusion of Psalm 32, verses 10 through 11, they are similar to how this psalm started. They offer 
an image of the flourishing forgiven. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The flourishing forgiven, they bask in the love of God. It's like going out and getting an awesome suntan, which I know nothing about, obviously. (laughs) Spend time in the sun, what happens? You just kind of radiate. You glow. Yeah, right? Not me, but you all, some of you out there, glow after being in the sun. This is how God's people respond to his love. They flourish in his forgiveness. They bask in it. The flourishing forgiven, they have a disposition of gladness, joy, softness, humility, confidence, overwhelmed by God's salvation toward them in his grace, his love, his mercy, and melts them. The flourishing forgiven, they don't settle for just an external obedience, but instead are completely changed from the inside out, and everything about them is different, is new. They are a new creation, experiencing blessing and forgiveness and joy, and the response is one of singing and happiness and gladness and love and flourishing. This is a picture of being forgiven. But friends, it's also an invitation. God is inviting you into this kind of knowledge of him. He's inviting you this morning to know that you are forgiven, to experiencing it firsthand, not just reading about it, not just hearing about it, not just studying it, but experiencing it. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to live and die and raise so that you could know, not wonder, that you are forgiven. And this truth changes the very nature of your being. You don't have to miss out on joy. You don't have to miss out on freedom. You don't have to miss out on blessing. You can experience it, right? You can experience it right now because of what Christ has done. Psalm 32 was true to its original audience. How much truer is it for you and for I now that we've seen what Christ has done. And not just you. What about us? The community of God's followers who belong to Jesus, right? Here's the kind of community we get to be. Not we have to be. We get to be because of what Christ has done. We can be honest. We don't have to hide. We don't have to shade the truth. Because if God already knows all and sees all, at our best and at our worst, past, present, and future, and he still sent Jesus to die for our sins, then we can walk in confidence that God has marked us with the freedom to be in the light. We don't have to hide in darkness anymore. If we confess our sins to one another, that can actually be normal. That doesn't have to feel uh, like an exception to the rule or like, oh, wow, that's interesting, thanks. It can just be a part of our normal everyday life and rhythm. Jack Miller, in his book on repentance, talks about this Christian community he came across in Uganda, and it was marked by such an unusual honesty in confessing their sins that if they saw a brother who was grim-faced and seemed down, you know what their first question to him was? Brother, have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? That was it. That was the key to unlocking a change in their disposition. 
God's forgiveness was new and fresh in this community. And what it brought them was just an abundance of joy. Knowing you are forgiven brings joy and flourishing. This is the life that Psalm 32 invites us into. Remember that Spurgeon quote uh, from a little bit ago, Christ bears our sin. And when we see that and trust that, we are accepted by God as if we are beloved in Christ. And we become a community that enjoys, what was it? A conscious blessedness. A conscious blessedness. Not because we deserve it, not because what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. We get to be the kind of community that no matter where we fall on the spectrum of strength of our belief, it doesn't matter. Because what matters is the object of our belief. And friends, that object is not just an object, it's a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb that was slain. So in Jesus, with Psalm 32 in our minds and our hearts, we get to be this kind of community. We get to be the kind of people that live by faith and trust in Jesus. We get to experience the love and pleasure of God the Father because the blood of his Son covers all that we are and all that we do, and we are sealed by the Spirit so that we don't have to wonder. We can just know. Friends, this psalm, if you are in Christ, are the very words of God to you. So I know we don't do this very often, um, but I'm going to invite you to close your eyes with me if you feel comfortable. You don't have to if you don't want to. But what I'd like to do is, with a picture of Christ in your minds, not just the cross, but his life, his disposition, his demeanor, the way he walked with people, the way he cared for people, the way he loved people, See him, sense him, and hear these words from his voice in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. People of Corndale, God is our hiding place. His steadfast love surrounds those who trust in him. Please pray with me now. Lord, you invite us into a different kind of life. You invite us to not just believe certain things about you. God, you invite us to experience you. You invite us to be seen and known and loved by your Son. You invite us to be seen and known and loved because of the Spirit of God living in us. And you invite us into a deeper, better friendship and fellowship with you because of Christ and what he has done for us. But God, we confess to you that we often settle for so much less we confess that we settle for functional living. We settle for baseline, getting by. So Lord, please look not on our apathy. Please look not on our tendency to hide, to mute, to tame our sin. 
Lord, would you, by the words of Psalm 32, ringing in our minds and permeating our entire being this morning, would you bring us into the light? Would you help us to experience joy and flourishing in new and fresh ways, ways we could have never dreamt of, ways we could have never imagined, ways we could never dream up on our own power? God, be with us now. Remind us that in Christ, we have nothing to fear and we have nothing to hide because he has feared all, uh, he has taken all, he has absorbed all, he has experienced shame and being dismissed and being turned away from, he's experienced abandonment, he's experienced abuse, he's experienced complete brokenheartedness. So God, we know that you know how we feel. We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to live like that's true. Help us to feel comforted to know that we can step out of darkness and walk joyfully and happily into your marvelous light. Pray these things in your son's sweet name. Amen.